you're not always going to feel great. But the issue is you give 100% of what you got to win that pitch. That's what it takes to compete. Hey, how you doing? Brian Kane, your Peak Performance Coach here with the Peak Performance Podcast. And today, it's truly, truly an honor and a special gift to be able to interview my mentor, the master of the mental game, the greatest peak performance coach that, that, that's ever been around, Dr. Ken Revisa. Let me give you my background here with Dr. Ken Revisa. I remember it clear as day. July 4th, 2000, I'm in Boston, Massachusetts. I walk into a Barnes and Noble for whatever reason. I don't know why I was walking in a bookstore that day. Probably the person I was with wanted to go in a bookstore. And I went over to the sports section and I pick up a book, Heads Up Baseball. Now, if you've not picked up Heads Up Baseball 1 yet, hit pause and go buy it on Amazon because it's the greatest book that I've ever read. And I'm sitting there in Barnes and Noble that day. And you, the best part about the way that Dr. Revisa wrote this book is there's little black boxes that give you basically the 20% or the Cliff Notes version of the book. You get through it in about 30 minutes. I read it and I said, good God, as a college baseball player, how come no coach I've ever had has talked about focus on the process over the outcome? How come no coach I've ever had has talked about just trying to win a pitch instead of winning a game or winning a job? How come... I've never heard someone say you got to be in control yourself before you can control your performance. God, that makes so much sense. So I actually bought the book. I bought the book. I go back to Vermont. I send Dr. Ken Revisa an email just on a whim saying, hey, I loved your book. Uh, I've never heard someone coach like this. I'm going to graduate from college here in about a year. And I would love to come out to Cal State Fullerton study under you. And oh, by the way, I want to be a college baseball coach. Could, you know, maybe I volunteer with the Titans and learn that program. And three weeks later, I get a handwritten letter back to my dorm in Vermont. And that, that book in that email to Ken and then the handwritten letter back completely changed the course of my life. And everything that I've ever been able to do, having, whether it be traveling out of the country to do different uh, events in baseball, in, in Holland, in Austria, in Japan, whether it's being able to go around the country and, and do what I would pay to do as a peak performance coach, all of that ties back to my relationship with Ken Revisa. He was my mentor and my advisor at Cal State Fullerton in 2002 and three. And um, I asked the man to be the best man in my wedding. And he was the first person I called when I had proposed to my wife and she said, yes. So Ken Revisa, his resume stands alone over 40 years of major league baseball experience in sports psychology with the angels, with the Dodgers, with the Rays, with the Cubs. And I'm sure there's other teams as well. Experience with the New Zealand all blacks, the most successful sports organization in the world. If you've been to the college world series in Omaha, you've seen him in the dugout with various programs, winning a national championship with Cal State Fullerton in 1979, 1984, 1995, 2004, then again with UCLA in 2000, I believe it was in 10, and also many times there with the University of Texas and the legendary coach Augie Garrido. It is truly a privilege to be able to interview my mentor and the author of the new book, Heads Up Baseball 2.0, Five Skills for Competing One Pitch at a Time. Ken Revisa, welcome to the Peak Performance Podcast, and thank you. Brian, I got to pick myself up off the floor after that, man. Unbelievable. You just went on and on. Uh, really something. But I'll tell you, BK, the, uh, the thing that's very important here is I had the good fortune of being able to learn from so many great coaches and so many 
great athlete, not even, not only great athletes, just the athletes and students that I had the privilege of working with. I've just been so fortunate um, in terms of that. And then also being able to have the graduate students like yourself and the others that were here with you over the years to be able to share information for students to question what you're doing, ask questions. It only helps you get better. So, yeah. My career has been a blast, man. And you were always fun to work with, Brian. No question about that. Well, I appreciate that, Ken. And, you know, it's, it's I think as, as the people listening to this, you know, there's, there's the people see Ken Revisa, the teacher, and they see Ken Revisa, the, the sports psychology person, you know, and what they don't probably realize, maybe if they haven't spent enough time around you, is that you're a learner first. And I think you just nailed it by saying, you know, you've from the great coaches you've been around and the students that you've had, you've probably learned as much from them as, as maybe they've learned from you. At least that's what you would think. But I'm sure they've taken much more out of their relationship with you just being as, as you know, experienced and well-versed and, and into the field of sports psychology. Really, I would say kind of the, the pioneer and the creator of the mental game of sport, in sports psychology when it comes to applied sports psychology, not something that you do in a, in a lab. Right. And I was very uh, fortunate in the sports psych world of having uh, the real pioneers. Bruce Ogilvy um, was just incredible uh, in sports psychology. Harvey Dorfman in the baseball world sharing ideas with Harvey. I mean, at one time, 1985, when I started in Major League Baseball, Harvey was doing the Oakland A's, I was doing the Angels, and we were the only two people doing the work. And then Charlie Maher came in with the Indians a couple years after that. And it was the three of us doing the work. And what's amazing, Brian, is in 2017, now 28 of the 30 teams have sports psych programs for their organizations. And it's really been in the last five years that this has really taken off in Major League Baseball. So it's very exciting to well, see the way it's come and it's evolved. No question about it. Well, in most organizations like the Chicago Cubs that you're with, they've got more than one person, don't they? Yeah. I mean, what most of the organizations have is someone at the big league level and then a various team of people working the minor league levels. With the Cubs, we got Josh Liprak, who coordinates our program, and Josh does a really good job of just making sure all the pieces are are working together. And then we got Darnell McDonald, an ex-player, and John Baker, an ex-player. And uh, uh, John's working on his degree in sports psych, and he's helping out. And then we got Ray Fuentes a, uh, from... A Latin background, and he works with our Latin players, and it's really a collaborative team approach. My work is primarily with the big club, and a lot of that's because of my relationship with Joe, because Joe and I go back 25 years, and we've been doing this together for a long time. You know, Ken, I always get asked as as you know a a a student of yours. Um, you know, they always say, what makes Ken Revisa so good at what he does? Is it the content? Is it the system? Is it the energy? Like, what is it? And I think I know what my answer is to that. But I'd like to ask you that question, Ken, is as a guy who's been able to, you know, get in Major League Baseball when it started, and now you're still in there, you know, 40 years later, 
what makes you successful when it comes to the mental game, do you think, and being able to serve as a, as a mental conditioning coach or a peak performance coach? One thing I got to clarify, Brian, it's really only been 25 years that I've been involved in Major League Baseball. Um, but I think in terms of that, one of the things is just going in and being able to keep your eyes open and learn from what that environment and what those people are teaching you so that you understand the culture that you're walking into. And I think one of my attributes is the ability to be patient. And ironically, like you know, when you were here as a graduate student, all of the things that we talk about in working with athletes, we have to use on ourselves to work on ourselves. Because if we're working on ourselves, that means when we go to the athletes, we, it comes from the heart. It comes from the soul more than just from the head. Do you have to have the information? Definitely. Do you have to know some of the research? Definitely. But the key becomes being patient and packaging it in a way that coaches and athletes can relate to and they can understand. But the key with that, Brian, is it's like that quote from Einstein. You have to make it simple, but not too simple. You have to simplify things, but you got to keep the essence. You got to keep the core in there and still have the point come across. So those are a couple of the things that that I think are very important. And in my years of doing it, BK, one of the things is that I've worked in different environments, environments where people were totally supportive, environments where there wasn't as much support. And there are many times when you're in that world of the clubhouse that you feel uncomfortable and you have to deal with it. And even at this this stage of my career, there's times where I just sit back, center myself, take a breath and just at times remind myself to be patient. And as my wife Claire shared with me one time when I was sharing the frustrations of the clubhouse, she said, Try just going in there, keep a straight back and an open heart. And that sounds corny, but it's been very helpful because there's times that you feel a little out of place and that's part of the work. And I'm on, I'm still trying to get my arms around it. It's an ongoing process, no question about it. And that's what's different, Brian, about Major League Baseball, professional ball, well, the minor leagues are different than the big leagues, but um, and th- but that's what's different than the college ball, high school ball. That's a totally different scene. When I go into uh, UCLA, Long Beach State, Cal State Fullerton, I mean, when you go in there, man, I mean, you're in charge. You do what you want to do. You present the program and you are on it. And it's just a different context that you're working in. Than at the uh, major league level. Major league level is different because yeah. you end up working with the players mainly on an individual basis. And being a teacher at times, I miss when I'm with the major league club, getting in front of the group, doing the presentation and really getting into it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think I think part of two of, of why you've been successful, Ken, is because your, your ability to, to develop relationships. Oh, absolutely. BK. Absolutely. You have to. You have to. 
Because one thing we know is people have to know you care before they care what you know. And and you have to spend the time taking care of the relationship building. No question. Fantastic. For the for the coaches that are out there, Ken, you know, that are that are listening to this podcast. You know, before we start we're getting into Heads Up Baseball 2.0 and the new book that's coming out, which is which is incredible. I mean, I, I don't know how I, when you said you were coming out with Heads Up Baseball 2.0, I was thinking, well, Heads Up Baseball 1 was so good. Like, how do you, how do you write a sequel to that? And we'll go into that in a second. But let's stay on this path of relationships because I love what you say about people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And the best coaches that you've been, been that you've been around, and you've been around Hall of Fame coaches in almost every sport, Olympic level. What what are some of the ways that you see, whether it's Joe Madden with the Cubs or Augie Greedo when he was at Texas, what are some of the ways that you see coaches connect with athletes in a day and age where maybe it's harder to connect than ever because of just the world that we're in? I think first and foremost, Brian, is that coach knows himself as a coach and knows himself as a person. Hmm. That they're authentic in the way they're presenting themselves to the team. And with with those coaches, you have to do it with your personality. Um, I remember way back in the day being with Tom Osborne in Nebraska in my early years of sports life. His presence and his awareness and sensitivity to his players was his, was in his way. I mean, a true gentleman. But that was his thing. Augie. Augie had a different approach. Augie's approach was more philosophical, spiritual in perspective. Joe Madden uh, walking around in the outfield with a fungal bat, talking to each guy individually. Okay, And then Mike Sosha. Mike has his approach, a little more distant from the players, but they know he's into the game. They get it. They respect the way he goes about his work. the keys is, as a coach, you've got to spend time getting to know yourself. You can't be, be somebody else. You've got to be authentic to you. Can you make changes and adjustments? Absolutely, as you need to. I mean, in this day and age, the athletes are different. It's a different time, and you do have to make adjustments. No question about it. You know, when you talk about kind of getting to your core, let's say as a as a coach and knowing who you are, so you can better connect with those that you serve. If we look at the core of Heads Up Baseball, the first book, playing the game one pitch at a time, that you co-authored with with Dr. Tom Hansen. You know, when I read that book, the the, the core of that book that really changed my life and changed my course in the end, as well as the you know tens of thousands of people, I'm sure that it has had the same impact on you know, is about taking responsibility, that you control your reaction to everything that happens. You know, it's that whole Viktor Frankl uh, mindset. It's one pitch at a time. It's, pre- it's, it's really present, process, positive. And then just getting to that at a super deep level. If you were to say, what's the core of Heads Up Baseball 1, and then kind of how that's evolved into Heads Up Baseball 2, well, I'll rephrase that. If I were to ask you to talk about the core of Heads Up Baseball 1, and then what's kind of evolved and, and really motivated you to write Heads Up Baseball 2 because of what you've learned. Let's go back to Heads Up Baseball 1 and talk about the core and then talk about the, the need okay. for Heads Up Baseball 2. If I, you think, I think it's a great question, the evolution of Heads Up Baseball 1 to Heads Up Baseball 2. And let me start with getting started in baseball. I probably worked in baseball at the college level, 
at the professional level with the Angels, working with their minor leagues, big club, but a lot of colleges, learning from uh, Dave Snow, Mike Weathers, George Horton, Jerry Weinstein. I mean, just great coaches. Uh, Skip Bertman. I mean, just having the privilege of being around those guys, incredible. And it was probably after about 15 years, I finally felt I was ready to write something. I have something I have to share. And when Tom and I, uh, because I'm not the greatest writer, as you know, Brian, and Tom was a very energetic young coach at that time. He kept pestering me to do this. And finally, I said, OK, let's do it. Um, and it was fascinating because what we were going to do in Heads Up Baseball, we were going to write a sports psych book, which meant it would have goal setting. It would have self-regulation. It would have imagery and visualization. It would have self-talk monitoring. It would have the classic skills, psychological skills. And as we started getting into the book, what we found real quick was we didn't want to do that. Instead of taking psychology and applying it to sport, what we wanted to do was look at the sport experience and let it come out of sport. So that then we started getting into things like one pitch at a time. And how do you play one pitch at a time? And I think that was one of the things that really I found as I was reflecting on those coaches that pulled us all together. It was about keeping the process greater than the outcome. And to do that, you've got to take care of one pitch at a time. So with Heads Up Baseball, the three major things were one pitch at a time, process over outcome, and the third factor being routines. Those were the big three in Heads Up Baseball. So Heads Up Baseball, we finished that. And then for 20 years, that book just, I mean, hey, it said everything. Brian, there isn't much I'd change in the first book. And then finally, after about 20 years, I said, things have changed. It, just with the athletes talking with the coaches, I kept hearing from coaches at the college level especially. The athletes don't know what it means to be on a team. Whoa. Now, in 1995, when Heads Up Baseball was written, guys knew what it meant to be on a team. They also talked about it. the athletes don't know what it means to compete like they used to. 1995, you didn't have to talk about what it meant to compete. 2005, you didn't have to talk about what it meant to compete. 2017, you got to talk about what it means to compete. Why? And I think a lot of that is because the kids, they don't go out, do the sandlot thing, play wiffle ball, and compete. I mean, it's all organized, travel ball, these types of things, which has incredible advantages. Let's be clear. They do. In terms of skill development and things, the athletes are probably better off. But in terms of getting dirty and competing, that became an issue that I kept hearing from coaches. And the big, the two big things in heads up baseball, well, there's, I would say, three big things. One is that the book is about how to compete. And tied into how to compete is taking one pitch at a time. And I remember when we were writing the book, there was a certain point we, we were into it. Tom said to me, if you had to summarize what this book is about in one sentence, what would you say, Ken? 
And this was probably after two years of working on it. And I said, Tom, it would be real simple. Give 100% of what you've got to win the next pitch. Give 100% of what you've got to win the next pitch. You're not always going to feel great. But the issue is you give 100% of what you got to win that pitch. That's what it takes to compete. Second thing, we had to talk about what it means to be on a team and how you contribute in so many ways when you're on a team. And part of it is embracing your role. And some guys are starters and some guys come off the bench. But the key becomes we've got to get our players to that rail supporting their teammates. We've got to teach our players to enjoy another teammate's success. And those are skills that come into play. No question about it. And the third thing with Heads Up Baseball, too, Brian, and and we can get into these more in our discussion, these three points. But the third thing that I've come up with and where I'm at right now is the mental game is very complex. It's, It's so complex But at the same time, it's simple. And Tom came up with the term simplexity, which I love. The game can be simple at times, but it's complex. It changes. It's not black and white. It ebbs and flows. It's undulating. It's moving. I mean, where you are one day, you may not be the next day. And it's this idea I think in the early, in in Heads Up Baseball 1, it was like read the book and maybe some guys would go back and look at different pages and things. But sometimes a guy would read the book, put it on the shelf, it's read. Where I think the mental game is at today, man, you've got to revisit it on a daily basis. Just like you take ground balls, just like you play catch, you've got to be working your mental game because it's an ongoing process. And it's also about you got to know the mental game. You got to do the mental game, which is a whole different thing because we know an intelligent young athlete can learn it pretty quick. And how many times for the coaches do they hear, I know, coach, I know. And for the coaches out there, when you hear that, the next time a kid says that to you, ask them, what do you know? So that they can at least give it to you and be thankful at least they can verbalize it. But it's a whole nother level taking it from knowing it to doing it. Now, doing it, you have to do in practice. And it begins there. Practice is where the action is, man. And then you go from practice into the game. And then you got to own it. And own it is where you got to develop your system that works for you. And you got to have that system that works for you when you got your A game, you got your B game, and you got your C game. Heads up baseball. One, we talked about routines and really we had everyone looking at the label at the bat, pick a spot, take a breath. Yeah. But where that's moved for me is that works for one guy. Another guy, it may be the sound of the tap of the plate. Another guy, it may be squeezing his bat with his hands when he's in the box. Another guy, I remember Peter Borges, um, His thing was he would smell the pine tar on his back. People have to come up with their system that works for them. And when we say that, it's what I was saying about they have to know themselves when they're going great, when they got their B game, and when they got their C. 
because one thing, and you and I have gotten into this discussion, Brian, um, I know you talked a lot about dominating, but there's also times, man, what I've learned is confidence is fragile. Confidence is fragile. It ebbs and flows. You're not going to maintain it all the time. It was like this year in spring training uh, with the Cubs, my first meeting with them. And we had all the players in the room. I said on November 3rd, that night in Cleveland, when we won the World Series, how many of you guys felt great? Now one hand went up. How many of you guys felt really good? Now one hand went up. I said, how many of you guys didn't feel great, but you competed your butt off? And every hand went up. Because after 162 games, 18 playoff games, who's going to feel great? Okay? It's about compensating and adjusting. Peak performance is more about refocusing than focusing. It's more about having a good crappy day and getting it done. And a question I'm asking athletes all the time is, hey, are you that crappy that you have to feel good to perform well? Because I think we're get, we get too damn into, I got to feel good. I got to feel just right. I got to have this energy. I got to be here. BS. You're not that bad. And if you are, then start practicing, start creating more blisters and do the work so that you have that inner confidence in your preparation in the way you go about playing the game. Brian, I went off a little bit on that, but I couldn't help it. No, man, I followed. So you're saying that the, you know, the, 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 the core of Heads Up Baseball 1, if you had to boil it down to the, you know, three things, would be process over outcome, one pitch at a time, in routines. And the core of Heads Up Baseball 2 is going to be how to be an elite competitor, how to be a, a team player, and then kind of the simplexity of the mental game. But I think that even in Heads Up Baseball 2, the process, the one pitch at a time, and the routines also comes out. Oh, yes. And I'll tell you, it was amazing doing the book because when we did it, and I remember talking to you about that I was going to do it, and you were pumping air in my tires about it. And um, I thought I was going to bang it out in a year. And it ended up taking Tom and I four years to do it. And the reason for that was that we bounced ideas back and forth and just really got into it in interviewing so many coaches and getting the different pers perspectives and trying to put that into a framework, you know, that could be teachable. And, and what I've really seen, and it's one of the things with the work for me that's a challenge, because where we're at today with our athletes is they want something quick and simple, and it's right here. But once again, we can't make it too simple because it's not that simple. And what we have to do is we have to present it in a way that works for them, but they also have to understand the complexity of the thing. No question about it. No question. And it's these undulations, Brian, between is there pressure? Yes. But you've got to keep the pleasure greater than the pressure. You've got to be external when you compete. You've got to be out there. The pitchers, you've got to be in the catcher's mitt. The hitters, you've got to be out on that release point. But there's also a time you've got to be internal for a pitcher where you're committing to your pitch. For a hitter, you're committing to your plan at the plate, what your approach is going to be. But then when it comes time to compete, you've got to be external. 
Now, one of the biggest problems I've had in my career, and I apologize to all the athletes, uh, I think especially of the 2004 Long Beach State team that had Evan Longoria, Troy Tulowitzki, Jared Weaver, and we did not get to Omaha. And I take responsibility for that because the guys were too darn internal with their routines and they weren't external enough out there competing. And from that failure, man, I've really gotten a good routine, takes you out as a hitter to the release point, And as a pitcher, it puts you in the catcher's mitt. And when you're there, that's where the competing is. But the game is filled with these undulations, external, internal, pleasure, pressure, process, outcome, being a teammate, taking care of yourself. How do you find those balance points in between? That's where the game gets gets a little messy. You know, you talk about the undulations, and in your book, Heads Up Baseball 2.0, you shared the, the example of a chicken sandwich. Would you talk a little bit about the chicken sandwich analogy? Because I think it's so fitting for what you're talking about right now. Perfect, Brian. I was thinking of I was thinking of bringing that up, and thank you for encouraging me on it. Um, the chicken sandwich analogy was at one point when we were doing the book, a uh, good friend of mine, uh, matter of fact, the guy that got me involved in Major League Baseball, Marcel Latchman. We were having dinner in Arizona during spring training, and Marcel, I, I, I had interviewed him for the book, and he asked me how it's coming, and he said, what do you got on it? And I said, what do you got on the mental game, Ken? I remember he said, and at that time, a chicken sandwich was, I ordered a chicken sandwich, and it came, and I said, Marcel. The mental game is like this sandwich. The bottom layer of the bun is a player's self-doubt, fear, confidence level. The chicken, that you got to go out and you got to perform. You got to execute your skills. The cheese, that's where your body's at. You got aches, you got pains, you got a sore arm, sprained ankle, whatever. Okay. The tomato, the tomatoes, How's your practice been going? How have your bullpens been going? How's BP been going? The lettuce. Oh, the lettuce, Brian. The lettuce is your personal life. And some days you take the field, you got a fresh piece of organic romaine lettuce. Other days you take the field, you got shredded lettuce. I mean, you got a lot of stuff going on. And that's going to undulate because for the student athletes we're working with, they're coming from stuff cross campus in classes, in social life, in family, and all of these things get put into what they're going through. The dressing represents the ballpark I'm playing in, the venue that I'm in. I like the field. I don't like it. I like the lighting. I like the the infield, whatever. Top part of the bun is the competitor who's trying to beat you. He's the guy that you're battling. Now, what holds this sandwich together is a toothpick. And the toothpick is self-knowledge. You got to know yourself. You got to know where you're at with all of these things. When you eat the sandwich, Brian, you take the toothpick out, you pick up that sandwich. It smells great. You take a great big bite from that sandwich, man. And the Goo comes down the side of the mouth and you wipe it and then that chicken slides over and you adjust it 
then you take your next bite and the tomato moves over and you got to move that and the lettuce slides and you move that and then you take the next bite. And that's what's happening as you play the game. Each pitch, the game is changing. That's the beautiful thing about baseball. And it's the beautiful thing that we see when we get to like playoff level, Omaha, it gets down to pitches. It gets down to pitches that people are engaged in. And even in Major League Baseball, World Series, it's down to pitches. After 162 games, 18 playoff games, it's down to winning pitches. And that's where 100% of what I got to win the next pitch. I do everything I can to get that chicken sandwich as neat as I can, and I take my bite. But it's constantly moving. Well, that's kind of in, in Heads Up Baseball 2.0. That's how you guys define what it means to be a competitor is to give everything you have to win the next pitch. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely, Brian. And, and the thing that I'm excited about um, that, we're, that we're doing is, yes, the book is going to be a read that people can read in sections, short pages. Uh, I made sure like Heads Up Baseball 1, the text is big. There's a lot of cartoons. Um, there's a lot of good stuff in it, but it's not where you sit down and you're going to read the book in three days. No, you're going to read parts of it at different times because the mental game is an ongoing journey. And what I'm really excited about that's different in 2017 than 1995 is that, um, and Brian, you're not going to believe this, but I am getting pushed into the next century and we are going to have a Heads Up Baseball 2 membership that once a month people can contact us, ask questions, that we can have dialogue with them. Because, and it really comes, Brian, from the work that you've done in getting the message out there to people and coaches. Because I know for me, the only way people see me is if I'm physically there. And what I'm finally getting, and some of it comes from your encouragement, Tom Hansen's encouragement, Matt Morris, Ken, we got to get you out there. And I sort of, you know, humble Ken, well, well, but I'm finally doing it. And it's going to be an ongoing thing where people can check in. We can talk about it because the other side of this, Brian, and you know this, there are pitfalls that go with the mental game and obstacles that people run into. And very quickly, for me, some of the pitfalls is the original issue with sports psych back in the day was you're going to get my athletes thinking too much. And that was that's a problem. But good mental game isn't thinking too much. Good mental game is doing the thinking at the right time and being able to dis distinguish thinking from awareness. That, those are two different things because you do have to be aware and you do have to be focused. And one of the things I mentioned earlier, another thing where we've gotten athletes and problems, we get them too into their mental game, too into their routines, and they're not external competing with what they're doing. And another pitfall would be just that there's too much going on in their performance instead of keeping it simple. And as coaches, you run into problems with the mental game. And we want to be able to be there to troubleshoot some of those and help people in working their way through them. Well, it's like, the, you know, just working with the college baseball team last week, 
and teaching the concept of the pre-pitch routine. And a player, you know, I said, oh, I want, you know, we, we give them a kind of a framework for here's what's in a routine. Here are some what, what routines look like. You guys got to take this, you know, know what we're trying to get to, which is in control yourself and get in the box to be able to, to compete one pitch at a time with what you've got. Here are some ways that other people have done it. You show different videos and then you want them to own it by coming up with their own. And this one player literally took him like a minute to talk about his routine. He goes, well, I tap my cleats twice and I put my bat under my arm and I undo my gloves and I stretch and I do this and I hit my toe and I hit my toe. And it was like, just trying to get to what's the, what's the one thing for you that, that is the most important. Is it smelling the pine tar? Is it taking a breath on the label? Is it taking a breath looking at the picture? Like let's cut out all the shit and just get to the one thing. That's the most important thing for you to do that. If you do, that's your trigger. Like looking at a focal point and taking a breath that says you're in control. Could you talk a little bit about that importance? Because I see it, you know, with uh, the volleyball teams you work with, the the player taking a breath on a focal point before she serves or before they pitch. You see it with the Cubs. If you watch them and they go into the postseason here, you'll see it all over the place. Talk about the focal point, because I know that's one thing that really resonates through both Heads Up Baseball 1 and Heads Up Baseball 2 that I think people can often get confused on, the importance of that and what it is. The focal point is something, Brian, that um... – it really came back from my work with the Olympics. Uh, the last Olympics was my ninth Olympic Games. I've done six Summer Olympics and three Winter Olympics. The Winter Olympics were all with figure skaters. But going into Olympics, I, I had the chance afterwards to really interview the athletes and, act, and ask them, what was the most helpful things that we talked about? And my overwhelming reaction, first and foremost, was the breathing and how important that was. But the second thing was the focal point. And the focal point being something when you go into that venue and you're just familiarizing yourself with that field, that you take a moment and you select something, whether it be the ball on the flagpole, a tree, and then, of course, a foul pole. That goes to Evan Longoria because Evan had a foul pole and we did that thing with E60, which I think is a wonderful teaching tool for coaches because to hear someone of Evan Longoria's caliber talking about the mental game and his ability to articulate it was huge. That was unbelievable. But that focal point, when you look at it, one, it makes it brings your attention external, but the second thing is it's a reminder. It's a reminder of the blood, sweat, and tears, the hay you put in the barn, the practice. And it reminds you to pull your chest up, and I belong here, you know? And it's a way to get that 100% of what you got, and you're ready to get into the next pitch. So it's something to go to when the garbage hits the fan. And as we always talked about, Brian, yeah, the garbage is going to hit the fan at times. And it, it may be between at bats that you go to it. It may be for a pitcher after he gives up a home run, going to that area where he releases the pitch, flushes it. And very often I recommend they stand on grass and feel their spikes dug into the grass, go to the focal point, pull the chest up, and then boom, come back. Now, Some players will do it pitch to pitch, and that's where the focal point may be the label on the bat. It may be the tapping, but it's more locking into this pitch. The focal point as a whole I view as something a player may go to three or four times in a game when it's really going sideways to 
group, except for the at-bat, they have their routine to start the at-bat. And as you said, um, I find players are different. Um, with the guys that I've had at Long Beach and Cal State Fullerton over the years, I ask them, the ones that are in the big leagues, I ask them, how did this stuff help you? And they said, what helped with the mental game, Ken, is it gave me something to go to. What's different now in the big leagues is I'm not doing it every pitch. I'm not doing it every at bat. I'm doing it when I need it. And I said to the guys, I said, well, does that mean then when I'm working with a college team, we shouldn't be doing it as much as we are? And they all said, every guy, Brian said, no, at the college level, you've got to learn your system and you have to do it. But at this level, I've been doing it so long that now I'm able to recognize that signal light that I need something to go to and I got my system that I can go to. So that's the type of thing, Brian, that is a little bit confusing, you know, um, because before it was crystal clear. Now it's a little muddy. But, hey, you got to figure it out, because one thing we've always talked about is one pitch at a time is an onion. There are so many layers to one pitch at a time and stuff that goes on with it that it is incredible. And it, you just go deeper and deeper into it. Well, you know, there was a, I'm sure you've seen the article that came out on ESPN right after the uh, All-Star break in 2017 where Aaron Judge of the New York Yankees, who you know was being talked about as American League MVP, American League Rookie of the Year, I mean, just taking, taking the game by storm for the Yankees, and he wins a home run derby, and then he goes one for 21 after the All-Star break. And there was an article on ESPN where he talked about uh, Aaron Judge uses dirt to clear his mind. And in the article, he references that when he was at Fresno State playing for Mike Batesel, he started to read Heads Up Baseball. And when he needs when he recognizes that he's in a yellow light or red light, he'll step out of the box, he'll grab dirt, he'll put it in his hand, he'll feel the dirt, he'll throw it away, to bring himself back, you know, in control of himself. And then ironically, two days ago, uh, I was over at Arlington Stadium watching one of my, a guy I worked with with, with TCU who was pitching for the Rangers and they were playing the Yankees. And I got to see Aaron Judge up close in person and got to see him work that whole routine where I think it was a, it was a one-two count and he got a fastball that he followed straight back and you saw him step out of the box, undo his gloves, grab the dirt in his hands and then toss the dirt uh, you know, and then yesterday he goes two, you know, two for two with two monster home runs. So I think that that you can see guys doing it. It's just if you don't know what you're looking for, I think sometimes they don't need people who are just coaches that are not versed in heads up baseball one or heads up baseball two wouldn't even notice that people are doing it. And the nice thing is, uh, Brian, that I, I think is where the game is at and where coaches are at. There's so much more acceptance of this. Um, you know, that someone like Aaron Judge, when he was up at Fresno State, he was working with Mike Batesel and Steve Rousey um, was working with him as well up at Fresno State. They where where he got it was in a class. They have a class for the baseball guys where in the offseason they actually read heads up baseball and go through it and uh familiar with the, they get familiar with the terms. But one thing we got to be real careful with is just because you, you do your routine, you take your breath, you pick up the dirt, 
it doesn't mean you're going to get your result. But what it does mean is you're working the process, you're controlling the controllables, you're giving yourself the best opportunity to succeed. Because from my perspective, all I'm trying to do when I go in and work with athletes is I want them what they're able to do in their practice and training, they're able to take into the competitive arena. And if they can do that, that's all we can ask. Now, if they can't do it in practice and training coaches, you better coach them up or you better get some other players. But, hey, they got to do it in practice. And then in the game, hey, bring it to the game. And you got stuff to go to. You have a toolbox, an assortment of things to help you out. So that you know when I got my A game, I go to this. When I got my B game, I may have to go to something a little different, but I have a system in place. And when I have my C game, then I may go to something else. And with the C game, for the coaches out there, when a kid is struggling with his C game, stop trying to get him to his A game. Just get him to his B game. Sometimes just make it less crappy instead of trying to make it great. And that and and that's just so important for me. And it's the thing that I find is really exciting. And talking with coaches, I think that's what your coaches find is exciting is how you figure this stuff out in working with the athletes that you're working with and what works best for that young person with where they're at on that given day. Or to take one of the terms I remember you said so eloquently back in 2002 and three when I was a grad student of yours is have a good shitty day. <laughs> I tried not to use the term, Brian, for your show. I wanted to keep it above board. No, yeah, no, but no, well, you know, that's... Let's have a good shitty day, you know, because <laughs> some days it's like that. And where that really comes up for me, Brian, is with a lot of the Olympic athletes and professional athletes that I work with, they are driven. They're perfectionistic. They're hard on themselves. And let's be real clear. Being a perfectionist and being hard on yourself, you know, that drives you. That helped get you to that level. It's the double-edged sword. Yeah. But the issue is we can overplay that card. And that's where they've got to start learning to curb it. Because the perfectionist views things as great or terrible. And that's where less shitty comes in. How bad was it? Well, it was a little bad. It was moderately bad. It was really bad. Break it down. The other thing it gets you to do is step back and laugh a little bit. And that's also important. We've got to keep the darn thing in perspective. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And I think that's that was something that really hit me, you know, when I read Heads Up Baseball the first time as a college baseball player was – that, you know, and then I heard you talk about it in, in, in grad school and, and so many of the things that stuck with me, this one was as big as any of them. And I remember you drawing on the board uh, with your artistic ways, you drew a sword and you said, perfectionism is a double-edged sword. It's going to motivate you to do better, but it's also the constant critic. And it's at, at a certain level, you know, when you get to a certain level of performance where talent evens out, the constant critic is going to zap you of any chance at performing at a high level. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. But also, Brian, it is a strength. It's not just bad. Right. I mean, it helped get you there. No doubt. And, you know, let's let's keep that in perspective. I've done some work with heart surgeons and they're pretty perfectionistic. And I'll tell you, if I'm on the table and they're mm -hmm. in there, I want them 
to put in a really good stitch. You yeah. know, yeah. I'm not sure it has to be a perfect stitch because one thing I learned from the surgeons is perfect stitch kills. Sometimes it takes too long to make a perfect stitch. Just make a good stitch, you know, and that's sort of like one of the themes Joe Madden talks about with the Cubs. Do simple better. Just do the simple things and just do them really well. And then his other phrase, try not to suck. Try not to suck. Hey, what does that do? One, it twists your thinking. Two, it gets you to laugh. And three, it gets you to just focus on being good. You're not that bad. You have to be great. Just be good. It's awesome. Just make a good pitch. Not a great, great one. Just a good one. Well, I hope for our listeners on this podcast today, Ken. I hope that they uh, hope that they look at this and say that it's it's at least a good uh, a good podcast, and they got a good understanding of of you know you and your experience and and what you're coming out with Heads Up Baseball 2.0. And and you know if they're listening to any of the any of the peak performance podcasts before, they know they've heard me talk about you for years. And I'm super excited to have you on. And I know for the listeners, they're going to want to get more Ken Revisa. They're going to want to get Heads Up Baseball too. And they're going to want to enroll in your monthly coaching process and membership group because you're right. You need to have that support. And who who better to have support than the guy that essentially created the mental game of baseball uh, in Ken Revisa. I mean, I know, I know I, I, I don't get to talk to you as much as I'd like to because I'd like to talk to you every day. But I know every time we have the opportunity to get together, I'm, I mean, I, my, my hand is sore from taking so many notes on this call already, you know, and, and I still go back to in my car and listen to classes that you taught in 2002 and three wow. that I audio recorded so that you're living in it all the time. And I think for those coaches that want to make that next jump of listen to this podcast to wanting to kind of make it a lifestyle and start to learn more is the best place for them to go to headsupbaseball2.com. They can get the book and join the membership group there. Is that, is that right? You got it, man. And uh, would be interested in their feedback to it. And one thing, Brian, that we've really emphasized that I emphasized to Tom and Matt Morris in terms of doing it is, hey, if people aren't satisfied, any money you contribute, you will get it back. And I, I think that's important because I feel that strong about what we're doing. It's not a problem. And um BK, some of the things that you shared that I think are very important is just to see the way that you've taken this and gotten it out to people um, is really impressive because you've touched a lot of people. And uh, that's very important. And in this day and age, I think the technology's there. I'm kicking and screaming, but I'm getting dragged into it. And I'm really excited about where this could go. We're, I'm going to try it out and see, see if I can fit in. Or, uh, you know, it's hard getting a dinosaur to move. You always tried. And um, it, it's really an exciting time for me. And the other thing, Brian, that you said is when we get together, we sit down and we talk. And you ask questions and I ask you questions. And for the coaches out there, that's what it's about. It's about watching other coaches. It's sitting down with coaches, sitting down with people, and just exchanging ideas. Not that you're right or wrong, but just, hey, what's it like to walk in your shoes? What's it like to coach the sport you coach? I would encourage some of the coaches, maybe you coach baseball, but you have a friend that coaches tennis. Go watch his practices 
and just see what you pick up. And after practice, debrief, talk about what you see. And this is something I do when I go to the universities. I have the coaches go and watch each other's practices and exchange ideas because, Brian, it's what you're putting out there. It's about learning. It's about getting better. It's an ongoing journey. No doubt. And I hope people make the investment to continue the journey over at headsupbaseball2.com. I know I've been there when, when the book first came out. I appreciate you sending me kind of an advanced copy. And I think I read the thing in, in one day and couldn't put it down. And, and since then, I have probably given out over 100 copies to close friends and, and coaches I work with. And I, I give them your book, not mine, uh, because I still believe that the best book that's ever been written was Heads Up Baseball 1. And I would put Heads Up Baseball 2 uh, right there. But when Heads Up Baseball 1 had so much impact in my life, um, you know, it, it, it's hard for me to recommend any other book other than that one, but I will tell you that Heads Up Baseball 2, I think, even takes it and expands on it. And I think the thing that Heads Up Baseball 2 is so, so powerful about is, you know, in Heads Up Baseball 1, it came out in 95. So the players that you're quoting in there, the Dave Winfields, the Rod Carews, the players today don't even know who those guys are. And if you right. look at, if you look at, let me just open up and let me flip the five pages and let's see. Okay, there's David Price, quote. There's Anthony Rizzo, quote. Next page, there's uh, Ricky Romero, who is a Fullerton guy and an all-star. There's Chris Bryant. And let me find one more quote here from a player. Uh, John Savage and Anthony Rizzo. I mean, so you, when you look at Heads Up Baseball 2.0, it's like this is the who's who of baseball right now. And if you're a high school coach or a travel coach or a college coach or you're a pro baseball player, the, and you want to know what the best guys in the world are doing because success leaves clues. And if you can follow the processes and the routines and the habits in the way that the best people on the planet think in your sport, then you're going to give yourself the best chance to try to become one of those elite people. And I think Heads Up Baseball too, Ken, you've captured it uh, as clear as it's ever been captured and as current as it's ever been captured. And I just want to thank you, man, for, for living a selfless life and investing yourself into other people and investing yourself into to growing others and growing the game, man. So thank you so much for just being you. And thank you, Brian. And thanks for this opportunity to be on your show and, and uh, contribute. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Everybody head over to headsupbaseball2.com. You won't be disappointed. 100% money back guarantee from Ken and from me. Double back on your investment. If you pick up Heads Up Baseball 2.0 and you say, you know what? This isn't the best baseball book. Hell, this isn't the best performance book I've ever read because I just had two coaches that I work with, a lacrosse coach and an NCAA basketball coach, two of the top in the game, go sit down uh, with you, Ken. And they came back and I said, how was it? And they said, it's unbelievable. That was the best. That was the fastest three hours of my entire life. So if you're not even a baseball coach listening to this, whatever field you're in, if you want to be elite and you want to maximize your chance for success, and most importantly, maximize your chance for service for others by showing up consistently yourself and being present, pick up Heads Up Baseball 2.0. And if it's not for you, you'll get a double back investment on your investment, one from Ken and one from me. Thanks for checking it out. HeadsUpBaseball2.com. Don't wait any longer. Head over there now. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Peak Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave a positive review or share a link to this episode on social media using hashtag PeakPod. Mention Brian Kane and one thing you learned in this episode for your chance to win a free ticket to the next Brian Kane Experience live event. Dominate the day.